Good morning. <laughs> um, we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 15, and then we'll move to verses 32 to 43. Acts 13, verse 1. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manin, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. When they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant for the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of, the of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. From Paphos... Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Verse 32, we tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors he has fulfilled for us, his, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy ones see decay. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. 
He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks for that reading, Sue. Um, if you are new or visiting, my name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're continuing in this series in Acts. So let me pray for us that God might help us as we look at this section of his word this morning. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have given us your word. It is a great privilege to have it in our language, to be able to reflect on it, to know that you are at work through it, that your spirit applies it to our hearts and minds and encourages us and challenges us as we read. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that good work in us this morning, that we might grow in our understanding and in our desire to live in the light of it. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, William Carey stands out as one of the greatest missionaries of the modern era. Born in Northamptonshire, England, he showed a remarkable genius at languages. He became a Baptist minister and he strongly advocated the sending of missions to the furthest parts of the world where there were no Christians. And he gave his fellow ministers no peace about this fact raising the need to spread the gospel around all the time. And you would have thought that his enthusiasm would have been welcomed by others. They would have been excited by this. But largely, he was not encouraged to launch out into a lost world. At one particular meeting, an old minister sternly said to him, sit down, young man, and listen to the advice of your seniors. If God wants to save the heathen, he can do it without you. Well, fortunately, Carey didn't listen, and his persistence led to the founding of the Baptist Missionary Society in 1792, and it was the beginning of a mighty work for the kingdom of God, a new stage, a new era in world mission, with Carey setting out the very next year as the first missionary of this new society that he had formed. And at that point, the gospel suddenly broke out of Europe and the United States, and within half a century of his death in 1834, there were 500,000 Christians in India. Well, as we come to chapter 13 today of Acts, we're at a new stage of mission, uh, long before Carey set out for India. Although, as we have seen um, in Acts chapter 10, the gospel had gone to the Gentile family of Cornelius and we have seen a Gentile church established in Antioch, just to the north of Israel, in what we would call Syria today. 
really the gospel had not systematically gone out to the Gentiles. There was just a slight expansion as the persecution had happened uh, in Jerusalem to this point. But here we start to see the gospel systematically going out. We start to see how the command of Jesus in Acts 1.8 that the gospel might go to the ends of the earth might suddenly materialize. But with all the unknowns that were involved, with that huge world out there uh, in that day to reach, the big question I want us to consider this morning is how will the gospel go to the Gentiles? It just seems an unlikely thing. They've got this small pocket in Israel and a little bit to the north of Syria, and they're going to reach the whole known world as this small group of fishermen and other followers go out with this good news about Jesus. How is this going to happen? Well, first answer to that question this morning, how will the gospel go to the Gentiles? By missionaries being sent. By missionaries being sent. So have a look again at verses 1 to 3. In the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So here is this fledgling Gentile church in Antioch and they're sending two of their leaders, in fact they're two teachers who had been instructing the church for the past year, we found out in chapter 11. It's an amazing situation, isn't it? Think about this, a young church of new believers, Gentiles, stepping out in faith and commissioning their two pastors for overseas service. But was it a huge step of faith on their behalf? I mean, it is clear in verse 3 that the church did fast and placed their hands on them, and certainly they sent them, which indicates a commissioning role of the church, whereby they gave their support and blessing to this mission initiative. But it's also abundantly clear, isn't it, in just these couple of verses, that it was really God who had sent Barnabas and Saul out. Uh, that the church was simply being obedient to God's revealed will. We read in verse 2 that God had initiated all of this just as he had dragged Peter uh, to Cornelius' house to open the door to mission to Gentiles to begin with in chapter 10. Now he is pushing these two men out of the church on what will be the first systematic mission to the Gentiles. This is the beginning of the first of three missionary journeys that Paul would undertake, uh, which will be recorded in a large part of what we will follow in the weeks to come in Acts. And we'll consider even the second part of this first journey next week. It, it travels over chapters 13 and 14. But Luke is really highlighting here in these opening verses that it's God who has ordained this new development. Yes, the church is on board and supporting and commissioning but God is seeing to it that the gospel goes out, that more people have the opportunity to hear and believe. And I think that description in verse 2 grabs our attention. It raises some questions for us too, particularly uh, the phrase, the Holy Spirit said. Uh, we naturally want to know how. How did that happen? It's been argued by some commentators, um, based on some of the Greek manuscripts we have of this verse, that are slightly different, that the Holy Spirit made known this 
plan through the prophets in the church. So the other three that listed, we presume, are the prophets. We know that uh, Paul and Barnabas were the teachers in this particular church. And often God had made his known in the early church, his will known through prophets, uh, sometimes predicting even future events. So we saw the other week that um, the prophet Agabus had predicted that there would be a famine that would affect the church in Jerusalem, and the church in Antioch had responded. They'd collected a financial gift and taken it to their fellow believers in Jerusalem. So some presume that the Holy Spirit spoke through the prophets in the church at Antioch to encourage these two men that this was God's plan for them. We don't quite know, uh, but the Spirit always affirms God's word. And Jesus had already said back in chapter 9, you might remember, that Saul would be an apostle to the Gentiles, that he would be sent to the Gentiles. And here we see that being fulfilled as he is sent out from the church in Antioch. Now, this still happens today, um, of course, all around the world. Before I came to Wollongong here, I served as a pastor at Chatswood. And at the time, there was a Korean congregation that met in our building as well. And the pastor of that Korean church, uh, whose name was Joshua, uh, had come from a mega church in Seoul that had 5,000 members. And they supported 100 missionary families every year, and most of whom had sent out from their church. And one day he was approached by the senior pastor and encouraged to be a missionary to Australia. He'd never been to Australia. Um, he was going to minister to the 40,000 Korean students studying in universities at the time in Australia. He thought it might be a two-hour flight from Seoul to Sydney. He didn't really know. He was told it was a little bit further. Um, but he'd, he had a young family. He was married with a couple of kids. Uh, he was heading out to a place he knew little about with very uh, sparse understanding of what would unfold in the days ahead. But Joshua's church had set him aside. They sent their leaders. Whether the person was already serving did not matter at all. In fact, it was all the more reason that he should go. He was qualified and equipped to go and share the gospel elsewhere. There's a great challenge in that, isn't there? And churches continue to do that and see the needs around them and the need for the gospel to go out beyond their four walls. And that brings me uh, to a second point as to how the gospel would go to the Gentiles. Not only would missionaries be sent firstly, but secondly, by the overcoming of occult opposition. Occult opposition. Notice again what is recorded in verses 6 to 8. They travelled through the whole island until they came to Pathos, and there they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear God's words. But Elymas the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. And so here we have uh, Barnabas and Saul sent out. The church has commissioned them. Verse 4 to 12, we get this um, summary of what happened on their first leg. They go to the island of Cyprus. And so they sail from the coast of Syria across to the island of Cyprus. And in verses 4 to 12, we get this description of their travels all around the island. Now, as they go there, they're going to familiar country for Barnabas. Barnabas was a Cypriot, and so this was like a homecoming tour, if you like, for him. And we need to grasp, though, that uh, on this first journey, 
the gospel had already gone to Cyprus to the Jews. Uh, we learnt that in back in chapter 11. So notice chapter 11, verse 19, we read earlier, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. So this had paved the way now for this further outreach to the Gentiles in Cyprus. And in verses 4 and 5, we get this description of their arrival on the east coast at Salamis. Uh, they go first to the Jews in the synagogues. This is not only a, a practical expression of the gospel being presented first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, Romans 1.16, but it's also strategic because Paul knew that they would get a good hearing from Gentiles who were open, from God-fearers, because they were already attaching themselves to synagogues and joining with the Jews in the worship of the God of Israel. And so we see that as he goes to the synagogue there and, and throughout his journey that follows, uh, that there was always a good reception uh, to begin with, uh, particularly from the Gentiles. We're told in verse 5 they proclaim the word of the God, uh, the word of God and that it met with little opposition across the island until they get to the west coast and they arrive in Paphos and problems start. Notice we see in verse 7 uh, the Roman proconsul was asking to hear the word of God from Barnabas and Saul. And so he, he asks for them, he sends for them. Now a proconsul was someone appointed by the Roman Senate uh, to administer a province. And so Sergius Paulus is the boss of Cyprus. He's in charge. That's amazing that he's asking for these men that have come to the island that he might hear the good news. Come and explain Jesus to me. But he has a Jewish sorcerer who's part of his entourage who immediately causes problems. There's clearly a spiritual conflict here as the gospel advances. A sorcerer was someone that practiced magic, who cast spells or incantations. And, and these were things which were strictly forbidden by God in the Bible for his people uh, because such occult practices draw on demonic power. So really, a Jewish sorcerer is an oxymoron. That shouldn't exist. Uh, those terms should not have gone together um, because there were so many prohibitions in the law, uh, particularly in Exodus and Deuteronomy. For example, Deuteronomy 18, verses 10 to 12 says this, Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. And by his opposition to the truth, uh, this man whose name was Bar-Jesus, which is a phrase that means uh, son of salvation, um, Paul says rather he's a child of the devil rather than a son of salvation, as his name implied. And notice that Paul doesn't strike him with blindness himself. He simply announces God's judgment and God causes this man to be blind. In God's judgment, this person who spreads spiritual darkness is himself placed in the dark. That's interesting, isn't it? Uh, we live in a world today that tries to play down occult practices. It puts a positive spin on them most of the time uh, through growing practices like Wicca, 
Um, but there's a strong warning here. You know, just because supposedly uh, good witches of Wicca follow their golden rule of home, harm no one, do what you will, doesn't mean that that won't fall under God's judgment. And just because many of the practitioners of Wicca don't believe in Satan doesn't make him any less real. Or dabbling in such occult practices any less dangerous because the person opens themselves up to demonic forces. It's very clear in God's word that such actions reject the true God. They reject his authority and guidance and are detestable to him. So have nothing to do with them. Now the result of this clear demonstration of God's power after Paul's statement is a positive response from the Roman ruler here, Sergius Paulus. Notice that in verse 12. Suddenly he believes because of the power he sees demonstrated and it says because of the word of God. He had understood the gospel message. And here is the fulfillment of Jesus' prediction on the road to Damascus. Jesus said back in chapter 9 that Paul would be his instrument to carry his name before the Gentiles and their kings. And here we have Paul preaching the gospel to a Roman governor who believed. The gospel is the power of salvation for all who will believe. And here it overcomes spiritual forces of darkness. And that brings me to a third answer to our question. How is the gospel going to advance to the Gentiles? Well, by sending missionaries, by overcoming spiritual attack, but thirdly, by overcoming Jewish opposition. Notice again what is recorded from verse 32. We tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors. He has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy ones see decay. Verse 38, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Now, in this major section of the chapter, we've got Paul and Barnabas going to Pisidian Antioch. Uh, that's part of modern-day Turkey. So they've sailed from the island of Cyprus across the Mediterranean to the coast of Turkey, and they go to this city a little bit inland. And here the gospel is really going into new territory. Nobody has taken the gospel into Turkey at this point. And again in verse 14, we see the same method, the same approach from Paul and Barnabas. They go firstly into the synagogue. And in verse 15, they're invited to speak. Uh, that was often the custom. You know, if you had a visiting Jew that came along, especially if they had some background in teaching or a Pharisee like Paul, then they would be invited. They probably didn't know what they were doing here. What an opening. They, they gave the floor to Paul, and doesn't he take hold of the opportunity? I think he preaches for the next three hours. It's quite a long sermon uh, that we have recorded here, one of the longest in Acts, and we've just got a summary of it. But it must have been like 
you know, leaving the door ajar for a salesman and he just, you know, barges through and helps himself to your coffee and so on. But here we've got this speech and you can divide it into three parts. Um, in this first section from verses 13 to 26, he's recapping the history of the nation of Israel. He's helping them to see the common ground they would have understood together as Jews and then he's going to take them to how it's fulfilled in Jesus. And that's what he comes to from verses 27 to 37. He says, well, all these Old Testament prophets, um, prophecies, all these things that were promised find their fulfillment in Jesus and his death and resurrection. And he particularly majors on the resurrection, did you notice? This is a key note, and it will be a key note throughout the rest of Acts in Paul's preaching. We often think today, well, you would focus on Jesus' death and his payment for sin, and certainly he doesn't avoid that. He talks about the payment of sin and forgiveness that comes through Christ's death. But he focuses especially on the uniqueness of Christ, which he points to through the resurrection. And he does it by quoting Old Testament scripture. This is what the Jews trusted, the Old Testament. And so he quotes from Psalm 2, from Isaiah 55, and from Psalm 16. But it's really the verse in Psalm 16, verse 10, which is important because here he's focusing on the resurrection. He talks about the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, um, how the disciples had seen him in verses 30 and 31. He talks about how that was in fulfillment of Scripture in verses 32 to 37. This Saviour who was promised, whose body would not see decay. And so this is a key argument for the Jews to understand the uniqueness of Christ and therefore his power over life and death, the eternal life that he can offer as a result. Now, defending the crucifixion is still crucial today. Uh, we live in a postmodern world, a postmodern culture, which tends to value personal experience and be disinterested in historical evidence and facts. But there is something that's very important here that needs to be defended even in our day to show that the resurrection is reasonable and is supported by eyewitness accounts. The power of the story is important, I think, as we share these truths, not just bare facts. And so I think Lee Strobel's story is a great example of this. I'm sure some of you know his story. He was an atheist. He studied, studied law and journalism. But when his wife became a Christian, it threw his life into turmoil because he was a dedicated atheist. And so he decided that he was going to investigate. He was going to put all his skills as a lawyer and a journalist and, and show that there was just no shred of credibility in this Christianity thing. And after two years of researching it, he came to the conclusion that it would have required him to have more faith to maintain his atheism than to become a Christian. And the movie that was made of his experience in 2017 called The Case for Christ is a great starting point, I think, for anyone who's still grappling with the truthfulness of Christ's resurrection. Or you could simply read his book as well. But Paul finally comes to the effect of Christ's work and the need for our response in verses 38 to 41. This is the, the pointy end of his sermon Notice in verse 38 and 39, Paul gives the application of this teaching. He says there is an offer of forgiveness here for all those who will come to Jesus. You can be justified, declared right, acquitted of your sin if you will trust 
in Jesus and his payment on the cross and his resurrection on the third day. He's saying to these Jews, these are things that the law could never do to you, for you. Now, you can't be saved by trying to be a good person. You can't tick every box and therefore go to heaven. Rather, you need to accept the Savior that God the Father has sent. Well, what's the reaction? He gets to the end of this long presentation. Well, it's mixed. And that will be the case all the way through the book of Acts. Uh, there will be some who are excited to hear the good news about Jesus and respond immediately. There will be some who have questions and they're like, ah, oh, I really don't know, I need further information. And there are others that just fiercely reject that same message. And we see that here in Acts 13. Notice that many of the hearers are initially really keen in verses 42 and 43. Both Jews and devout Gentile converts uh, respond. In fact, they're so excited on that first Saturday or Sabbath that a whole crowd of them follow Paul and Barnabas after he'd been speaking for so long, and they want to hear more, and so they follow with them and they answer further questions. But by the next Saturday, uh, obviously news about this had spread like wildfire, and basically the whole of Pisidian Antioch turns up at the synagogue, and the Jews are not impressed or well, many of them. They had not yet come to terms with Jesus being the Messiah that were awaiting. And this whole influx of Gentiles from a largely Gentile town was too much for them, it seems. And so they started speaking against Paul. They started speaking against the gospel. They didn't want to hear this message that seemingly all the Gentiles were flocking to hear. They were angry. And Paul turns to them and says, well, look, if you don't consider yourselves worthy of receiving eternal life, we will share this good news with the Gentiles. Of course, that was well received by the Gentiles that were still listening, and it seems that even more Gentiles came to faith. But many of the Jews turned away from hearing the gospel at this point. But of course, it was a Gentile town. What do you do if you're the Jewish minority and you want to get rid of these guys who, in your mind, are taking away your Gentile proselytes? and converting them to Christianity, well, you have to go to the powers that be in town. So you go to the Gentile rulers and you say, these men are causing confusion. Get rid of them. Boot them out of our town. And eventually they succeed and they're expelled from the region. But not before many Gentiles had come to faith and a few Jews as well. Now, look, perhaps as you're listening this morning, you're thinking, well... I'm in that middle category. <laughs> I'm like those people that followed Paul and Barnabas. I don't know. I've got lots of questions. Well, please, let me encourage you to ask those questions. Uh, we spend a lot of time seeking to provide that opportunity for people at our church. We run Christianity Explored courses. We've got another two or three starting in the next week or fortnight. We'd love you to be part of that. Come along and investigate it for yourself thoroughly for seven weeks. Ask those questions that you've still got concerns about. The same offer is there today as it's always been. God can forgive all people of their sins through the gift of his son, the Lord Jesus, who paid for them on our behalf. It's a wonderful message of hope, of new start, of life that begins now and goes on into eternity. Please speak to somebody after the service if that's you. But what if you're a Christian here today already? What does this uh, passage in Acts 13 mean for us? Well, I think the big message that runs right through the book of 
Acts is that the gospel just keeps going. It's unstoppable. God will see to it that his message keeps going to the ends of the earth. That's his plan. And he sovereignly uses different humans as his instruments to share that, different believers holding out the word of life. But in doing that, there's a cost because there will be a lot of pushback against that. Just as the first disciples faced opposition, so will we. So how do we keep persevering and sharing the good news today in a world that really doesn't want to know about Jesus, that hates the exclusive claims of this man who says he is the only way to heaven? Well, I think there are some things that we can do, humanly speaking. Sometimes we're the barrier. We can be more thoughtful about the culture we're in and the way we present the good news so that people will give it a hearing. We can try to help people to listen more closely. As Sam Chan points out in his book, Evangelism in a Skeptical World, this will mean a whole series of things. It means being really authentic, being real about the difference that faith makes in our own life, being willing to share our story, our testimony, being committed to hospitality, to inviting people into our home and into our life, Seeing that it's more than just propositions on a Sunday, but it's a lifestyle that infects every moment of every day. We need to focus on story so that we might help people to see the importance and the change and the passion that it's produced in people's lives. But we also need to acknowledge that in the end, even if we are seeking to present the gospel in the context of our culture, there will always be pushback. There's a serious spiritual battle going on, as we saw in the earlier section, because Satan is not wanting people to come to faith. And I think so often Christians get worn down by the opposition. We get burnt by the personal rejection at times. We, we therefore then start to retreat from sharing our faith. We find it easier, frankly, to give ourselves over to otherworldly interests, you know, to just fit in, pursue the easier path. And so we distract ourselves with the things of this world, which we know are empty, but we find ourselves pursuing all kinds of other goals, sporting or career-wise or whatever it might be. We can fill up every moment of every day doing all kinds of things except living for God's kingdom. I want to return to William Carey, the father of modern mission, for a moment. Because he felt that weight of opposition and the attraction of giving his time to something simpler. But he persevered because of the importance of the Great Commission. He often was learning languages, different dialects in India, seeing little fruit, trying to translate the Bible. But he has this famous quote, which I think is so pertinent to our age. I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. Isn't that true? As so often, I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. You know, we are part of the continuing Great Commission. God has demonstrated through Paul and Barnabas that his word is the power of salvation for all who believe. We have a mission-minded God. The question is whether we share his mission commitment Are we on mission with him? Are we his ambassadors? Or are we just mucking around with the distractions of this world, failing to hold out the word of life to people who need to hear the good news and be included in God's wonderful family?
Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a mission-minded God, that you love this world so much that you gave your only Son, the Lord Jesus, that whoever believes in him may not perish but receive eternal life. Oh, Lord, help us to see that that is your great agenda for this world, that you might draw more and more people into your family. But help us to see our role, that we are to be your people, holding out your word of life, the gospel. Uh, Grant us the courage, the perseverance to continue to do so, that your gospel may go out to the ends of the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name.